Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. You are listening to Tech Time with Summers F1, presented by Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. I'm your host, Matt Trumpets, and once again, we're fortunate enough to be joined by the hardest working man in Tech F1, Matthew Summerfield, a.k.a. Summers F1, assistant technical editor at Motorsport.com, who has deigned to sit down and share some wisdom with us. It's good to see you again. Thanks for taking the time. No problem, mate. It's great to see you again as well. Yeah, it's a little bit wild to be doing this live with like people watching and everything, isn't it? It is. It's, uh, it's been a while since we've done a live one. <laughs> Yes, indeed. Well, and there's no telling where this one's going to wind up because it's been a busy weekend for the both of us. But I have some things that I would like to talk about. So if you're all ready, we'll get ourselves started. Let's go. All right. Well, I'm going to go where I know Spanners probably doesn't want me to go. And no, that's not going to be tires. I want to talk about Williams because they, they seem to have cracked some kind of a code recently and i know they didn't start off in the greatest of place places they were having issues with stability at the beginning of the season and i'm curious what have they been adding what have they been doing that has sort of changed the equation for them what have you seen them working on where they've been able to make a difference with their with their new capital and with their new technical team well, I think there's a, a lot of aspects involved in what you're seeing with Williams this season. So you've got uh, primarily, let's discuss the uh, resource restrictions that have been put in place for 2021. Okay. Uh, that has allowed, obviously, Williams more of a percentage in the wind tunnel and CFD compared to their competitors. So they started the season at the bottom end of that scale, giving them 112.5% of the allocation. Um, because they've... In- 
done so well in the first half of the season, that means that they've then been pulled back to 110%. But that's still a great deal more than obviously the, those at the front. So that obviously has given them more capacity to be able to make that leap forward. I think they've done an exceptional job with obviously that side of things. They've also uh, improved certain aspects of their operation, the way that they're running the team. Obviously, there's been new people come on board like Joss Capito, uh, etc. And that has obviously had a bit of a stimulus in in terms of the way that they're approaching racing um, and and the way that they're going to develop the car throughout the course of a season. I think we'll probably see more of that as we move into 2022. But I think what we've seen so far from 2021 has been exceptional in the way in which that they've been able to to, to make a marked improvement over what we've seen before. But just going back to the start of the season and the way that things have happened because of COVID and the protocols that came in place for that, obviously we've ended up with the same chassis as last year. We've only, you know, two development tokens able to be spent to be able to, to make serious improvements. And I think that's kind of helped Williams in many ways uh, because it has allowed them to sort of spread their resource and their timing, um, whereas no- normally they'd be looking at ways to improve the the chassis as well that they haven't have to, had to do this year. So I do think there's plenty of um, different ways that they've improved this season. Uh, and also recently I, I've noticed the fact that uh, Joss talked about the fact that they've, ha- they've gone in and made changes to their wind tunnel as well. Um, Actually, the wind tunnel itself was up to specification um, from the Williams days, uh, but since they've had this investment come along, and since they've made the other, you know, the other changes within the team, they've been able to see that they needed to make certain other alterations to to the way that the wind tunnel works, uh, and they've made those improvements, and that's obviously bearing out on the track as well at the same time. Okay, so I am vastly curious about wind tunnel improvements because. So often in the past, we have seen wind tunnel changes result in in lots of solved problems and improved performance. Are you aware of what exactly they changed? I mean, are we talking about, again, where the thing was, where the size of the model had gotten so big, they were beginning to run into extra boundary layer issues? Or was it just simply a straight up correlation issue that they were able to solve with improving maybe their telemetry and, and sensor setup? I think you, it's more towards what you've mentioned in the latter there, more to do with correlation than it is to do with, you know, specifics of um, the way in which the the, the tunnel uh, actually works. Um, and I think that has bore out in the way in which they've developed the car this year. As you mentioned, they had a high sensitivity to to wind direction at the in the early phases of the season. And they spend a lot of time trying to understand how that actually manifested on the track with um, Flovis sprayed all over the car. I mean, if you saw um, some of the pictures from testing, then you would have seen the car completely covered in different colours so that they could see exactly where uh, certain areas of the car were working and weren't working. And then obviously that helps them to translate that when they look at what the results are showing in the wind tunnel and CFD and how they get that correlation between all of the tools, whether it be in simulation or at the track. And that obviously then bears out in terms of performance later down the line because you can make adjustments that you wouldn't necessarily be able to understand if you hadn't sorted those correlation issues in the first place. Okay. Having said that, I do have another question, sort of a little more forward-looking question. And yes, we will perhaps discuss the uh, news about the 2026 power unit regulations 
further on in the show. But one thing that absolutely has happened is we've seen that Alex Albon has been signed for Williams and that he was signed under terms that it seems Toto Wolff very much tried to dictate, but was almost entirely unable to. And with Yost Capito coming from VW and with Audi and Porsche talking very much about uh, getting in on the next set of regulations, are we seeing the possibility that maybe Williams might be tempted to throw their lot in with Red Bull in the short term and with either Audi or Porsche in the long term, uh, possibly to the detriment of Mercedes? Well, I think there's a lot to unpack there. Firstly, the fact that um, VW Group, uh, as part of uh, Audi and Porsche, as you mentioned, are looking potentially at coming in 2026. Now, that's five years down the line. Um, we've still got a huge amount of racing to happen in, in between that uh, that period, and we don't know how Williams are going to fare in that, that, that period of F1. Um, however, something to bear in mind, and I know contracts really don't mean too much in Formula One, but Williams did extend their deal with Mercedes until 2025 and they've taken the Mercedes gearbox as part of that package uh, and obviously the ancillaries, et cetera, that go with it as much as the way that Aston Martin buy all of their ancillaries from uh, Mercedes. Williams will do very much the same in the the, the, the next few years. Um, so obviously they are kind of sorted until 2025 at this point. But it's not to say that, you know, uh, deals can't be brokered and things can't be changed. Um, I just don't think that at this stage um, in Williams' new sort of era that they should be looking perhaps to try to deviate too much from that plan. Um, Mercedes still have perhaps the best power unit on the grid. Honda have made a huge amount of improvements, um, but you know they're still coming up to a level that Mercedes have drawn the line in the sand and everybody else has had to catch up to. And so I do think that there's a possibility that 2026 onwards, we could see a, a new you know, sort of partnership emerge between uh, Williams and Red Bull or, v, you know, one of the VW brands, um, especially because of Capito and his past uh, with VW. Um, but I think in the short term, we will see them continue that relationship with Mercedes, albeit in a very different way because of the fact that George Russell is no longer part of the deal that, uh, that cites him at Williams. Okay, you bring up Mercedes and you bring up the best power unit. So you're forcing me to improvise here, but I'm going to jump right to Mercedes because one of the biggest questions I had is we saw that our friend and race car driver, Valtteri Bottas, got a brand new, brand new power unit, or at least some major bits of one at the last race after he'd previously just gotten an entirely brand new one at the race before that. And they said, well, there were some quote issues. We don't know what, if we can use the one that we just gave him. So we're going to sack him with yet another penalty and give him more bits and hope that the, as you correctly point out, pool of parts that he now has, will see him to the end of the season. Do we have any idea? Was it a clue to us? what they replaced as to where Mercedes is maybe struggling a bit with reliability right now. Well, I think this sort of plays into the, the old sort of Honda tactic of pooling components as well uh, in as much as that 
you take the penalty to be able to uh, live to fight another day. Um, I know there was a lot of conspiracy theories about the fact that this was done intentionally for that purpose, but there there was obviously uh, an issue found with the power unit that uh, was in the back of Bottas's car. It was sent back to Bricksworth to be analysed, and obviously uh, that will we'll we'll probably get information about that in the future as to what the actual uh, problem was there. But it's not the only one or the only team where we've seen that sort of situation unfold. The sort. Going back to Williams, Nicholas Latifi also took uh, an additional power unit. Uh, and so I think what we're starting to see is the fact that, in my opinion, and I've mentioned this before on previous shows, is that basically uh, we've seen the case whereby the regulations have requested something from the teams that isn't probably viable. We're racing with a, a pool of parts that are very much on the limit of being able to do the number of races that they're being asked to do. And that's primarily because the amount of performance that's being asked of them, especially in the terms of when you look at Mercedes and Red Bull, who are really pushing one another uh, for those results. And obviously, because they're doing that, they're having to ask more of the power unit. And you know that has an effect on reliability. Yeah, well, you were heading right to the question I wanted to ask was, is as much as anything else, is this just a result of Honda and, and Red Bull having brought their A game this time round? And is Mercedes being forced to delve into settings and maps that really are putting them on the very bleeding edge of what they're capable of? I, I do think that there's a huge amount of pressure being invoked by the progress that we've seen from Honda. I also do think that perhaps Mercedes uh, are also trying to put some internal pressure on themselves to be able to step up to the mark past the point at which they're comfortable with. Uh, so we're seeing obviously them, them push the limit of the power unit beyond um, you know where they initially expected to be, have to do that this season. Uh, so it's a, a, an interesting back and forth uh, in as much as that you could effectively see that uh, one driver could 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 affect another in in the championship based on having to take penalties here and there. I, I'm not certain that even what some of the drivers have in the pool at the moment might be enough to get them to the end of the championship. We might see, see more coming still uh, down the line. Well, that would bring up Hamilton um, needing to. I mean, how restricted do you think he really is if he's trying to nurse that power unit to the end of the season? And are they ultimately going to lose more than gain by trying to get to the end without replacing it? Or do you think he's really going to be down for one at, at a certain point where they feel like they can make a lot of places back? Well, firstly, I'd, I'd recommend the fact that we're looking at a pool of parts again, to just to reiterate, it's a Fair pool enough. of parts and, and not just one power unit that we're looking at. So, you know, the, 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 he has that. A, a, an array of parts that you can install in the car. Um, how far they are along in terms of degradation is the big issue uh, and how far that they can, can continue to push them uh, without obviously them having too much fatigue uh, and uh, you know needing to be replaced. If you're having an easier race out front, let's say, then you can turn a few things down and you don't fatigue 
the parts too dramatically. And so that could be that could play a factor um, at certain points in the season. However, having said that, and having already mentioned the fact that I think some of the other drivers might still need to put more parts in their pool. I do think that there will be a tactical element to Hamilton taking a penalty at some stage to be able to make his way to the you know to the end of the season um, with perhaps one more power unit in its entirety in his pool. Okay. Well, I, now I'm I'm very curious because uh, we just last week uh, talked about the number of laps that Hamilton has led over the last eight races, and I think it was something like eleven, maybe sixteen. It's not. He has been using that those power units and their various components in whatever configuration they've been screwed together for the race quite heavily, and I'm curious. Uh, much as I mentioned with Botas, he, he took the he took a ice, he took a turbocharger, and he took an MGUH, as I recall, to keep him in front of Verstappen at the start. Do you think again we might get some hints about where Mercedes' weakness is currently, based on Hamilton strategically taking the minimum amount of stuff he thinks he will need to get through to the end of the season, or do you think we might see them just string it out over a series of races? where they'll qualify him on pole and take a five-spot drop and then expect him to be able to catch up at the tracks where they feel like they have the advantage. I mean, let's be realistic here. We do know that starting from the back of the grid for a Red Bull or a Mercedes in the hands of Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton predominantly can mean that they get back towards the front end of the grid. The only realistic barrier to that is the McLarens now because of their sudden arrival on pace um, at certain tracks. Um, but if you put them against most of the grid from the bra- from the back, they will be able to recover those positions. And so for me, at least, I think they will take an accrued penalty with all of the components in one hit, um, just because it will allow them to basically take it in one go rather than take it over the course of several races. Okay, so the thing that I, I want to get to then, and maybe it's just the uniqueness of Monza as a circuit, but what I saw was Valtteri Bottas with that new power unit, obviously I think at a setting that Hamilton wasn't using, able to get round a, a McLaren eventually, that Hamilton himself couldn't get by. And that's the disadvantage that I'm interested in. It seems like Mercedes have a power unit that they when they turn it up to 11, can get them round a McLaren. But when they turned it up to 11 and let Valtteri do that, it broke. Yeah, so essentially what we're looking at here is, is that you, you're facing off against the team such as McLaren that have built a very efficient car. Uh, and so it is very good in a straight line. Monza obviously makes it made it very difficult for Mercedes because although they had a one-off uh, Monza special uh rear wing they still weren't realistically able to overtake mclaren because they are so much more efficient in a straight line with the same power unit and i think that as you mentioned the issue was compounded for hamilton because he's having to nurse his power unit in as much as that he only has available a small quantity of what you would consider to be um well what they used to call um party mode uh whereby you know they just turn everything up to 
11 and, 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 and go for it. But when you're facing off against a team that also has those tools at their disposal because they're running the same power unit, but they're also a little bit quicker in a straight line because they have a better aero configuration for that particular circuit, then it becomes problematic. As you say, Bottas was able to overtake the McLaren, but that was under different circumstances with tyres, uh, offset, etc. So it was a very difficult, different scenario to what Hamilton faced. Uh, and as I mentioned, for me at least, I think that McLaren could be the stop in the, stop in the bottle uh, in terms of uh, a revival from the back of the grid to, to the front of the grid if, if and when Hamilton decides to take that massive grid penalty. Okay, so before we leave this topic, I just want to briefly address um, some things that we've heard both from Mercedes and from Red Bull, which is namely uh, Mercedes quite some time ago said, oh, we've really given up on this season. Like we have some stuff in desk drawers we might decide to make for the later stages of the race. But we're, we're all about that 2022 car. So you are the person who looks and, and notices the tiniest of changes. Do you feel like, in essence, this is really where Mercedes in is? Have they stopped bringing the noise? Are they just bringing what's left in the pipeline? And it's just going to have to do. It's just down to the drivers to make it all work. Okay. So in terms of development parts, Red Bull have chucked the kitchen sink at 2021. There's no other way of describing what they've done. Uh, they have bought parts to almost every race so far this season, uh, which clearly shows their passion to win this particular championship. And if that derails 2022, then so be it in some respects. I don't think um, that it will do um, for Red Bull because I think that they, they've, they'll be able to work between the two uh, projects that they have at their disposal. Um, but in contrast, Mercedes have brought very little to the game uh, for 2021. Um, they've re- used what I would call rectifying situations situational parts so they've when they had an issue in pre-season testing it put them on the back foot a little bit they had to throw a little bit more development at the car to be able to recover the performance loss that they didn't really realize they would have until they were at the track with those parts i believe personally that their cfd and wind tunnel tools were telling them that they were going to gain a little bit more performance in the opening part of the season and they weren't expecting this sort of problem that williams had uh, with wind sensitivity So they rectified those issues, fairly large scale parts that they had to build for those. Um, And, and, you know, they've continued to do what Mercedes tend to do, which is they don't upgrade every single race. They bring bigger packages, but in smaller quantities. However, they did commit to say that they weren't going to bring any more parts after Silverstone, I believe it was from memory. Yet at the last race, they had a new front wing. Um, it was a it was a subtle change. Let's start there. It wasn't a totally new design. It was a very subtle design change to the upper and middle flap of the front wing, which means that they get more outwash. Um, but it goes to show that they did have stuff in the pipeline, or if they didn't have stuff in the pipeline, they've re-engaged because of the battle that they now find themselves in. So it's a really interesting battle this season between the two in terms of what they've prepared to give up on 2022 and what they've prepared to obviously get them through 2021 this season. Well, you've kind of anticipated me a little bit with your remark about Red Bull, because this was the end of this topic for me, which is to say Red Bull, obviously very committed, but we've even heard Christian Horner now say, look, you know, we are pretty done 
with 2021, where most of the focus is on 2022. But again, you're the man who counts the parts when they show up on the weekend. How true is that from your point of view? Do you see sort of, not that they've given up on it, but that there's, there's sort of a slacking in the amount of stuff that they're bringing to the weekend now that we've entered sort of the, I guess we'd call it the final stint of the year with just seven or eight races left to go. The twilight of the season, as I like to call it, um, in terms of development. Um, effectively, yes, the, the, they have slowed. But I think one of the things that we tend to forget about in Formula One is that whilst we're looking at it from the perspective of right here, right now, the teams are about 15 to 16 weeks ahead of us in terms of where they are in terms of development. So that means that, you know, something like a front wing, which is something that takes a very long time to manufacture and produce, um, will basically take that length of time to get through through the schedule. Um so what I think you will see is that there will still be developments coming to the car, but there will be far, far less of them. Um, there will be things that are basically optimizations. There's nothing going to be brand new or revolutionary about anything that appears on the car at this stage in the season, purely because it takes so long to manufacture those kind of parts and the amount of resource it takes to develop those style of parts. But where I think the biggest thing might come from in terms of um, performance from those two teams in the back end of the season is how much they're prepared to commit to building new parts of the same specification. Because if you think about the way in which power units degrade over time, the same can be said for parts that are installed on the car for aero surfaces, because at the end of the day, they're subjected to loads, forces, and they deteriorate over time. As Spanners would have mentioned in the past, being an engineer, he will have noted the fact that, you know, you you have to put weight into these items to be able to get them to last longer. Well, you want to take weight out of Formula One parts, but then that goes against, you know, your your deterioration scale. So it's going to be a very, very difficult battle for both teams to be able to manage how they go about their production levels in the back end of the season as well, especially against the backdrop of a cost cap. Indeed, it will. So where I'd like to go now uh, is to talk a little bit about the midfield, but not before I equip that tomorrow's headline will be Summers tells us that F1 has invented time travel because the teams are 15 weeks ahead and we didn't even know it. All right, I was I was lying about the midfield. I'm, I I could care less about the midfield except for Ocon, of course. What I really want to talk about is the battle between Ferrari and McLaren, and we saw this week uh, the culmination of a very interesting strategy from Ferrari, which I'm still struggling to understand the legality of. But essentially, they sort of showed up with last year's power unit told the FAA, this is last year's power unit. It's not the one we homologated, but somehow it's okay because it's last year's. And eventually we we're going to add some bits to it. And they did this with uh, our friend uh, Charles the Clerk um, uh, to test what they said was their 22 hybrid setup. And I'm thinking, and they seem to be happy with it. So my first question is, uh, from a technical point of view, do you know what they did? And what the evaluation of that was. Okay, so 
this isn't actually just isolated to Ferrari. It's all of the manufacturers. Uh, in fact, Red Bull did the same with Honda at Zandvoort. Um, in fact, no, I believe they did it with Max in Belgium because they bought a new specification energy store, um, which is the first um, upgrade that Honda have made to their energy store since they arrived back in the sport in 2015, believe it or not. Um, but going back to Ferrari and how this has happened is that all of the manufacturers were allowed to make one specification change either at the start of the season or throughout the season to the components um, with, that make up the power unit. Um, so obviously Red Bull, as I've mentioned, have updated their energy store. Ferrari have looked to update part of their hybrid system. I believe it's probably the MGUH that they've changed. Um, and it's all about the way in which that they're looking to alter the deployment and recovery of the energy recovery system, um, which is interesting because you look at both Honda and Ferrari, and they're both pointing their um, development towards the ERS uh, because that's where they know that they can make up the numbers. Whereas in previous iterations, everybody's looked at combustion to make up the difference. So there's a bit of a you know a catch up in. The, the hybrid side of things and whether that's the movement of engineers that has, has kind of happened around the roulette from Mercedes that have kind of uh, gone around the uh, the different teams or, or engine manufacturers, then that's a possibility. Um, but it is a very interesting that uh, Ferrari have rolled this dice early so that they can actually get some real-world data on those parts before they head to 2022. Well, that being the case, it immediately begs the question of, and you mentioned other teams were doing this with the power unit. Are other teams doing this with other parts? Are you starting to see maybe some evidence that teams are beginning to look at designs and concepts that will serve them next season and trying them out this season when when they still have an unlimited budget? Because unless I've completely lost the plot, I'm pretty sure the cost cap all the soft as it may be, begins next season. Well, the thing with the cost cap, though, from an interesting point of view, is that for teams down further on the grid, the likes of Williams, let's say, who we've already talked about, have done so well to to project themselves further up the grid, it gives them a a, a new line in the sand to meet. Um, It gives them a new impetus to go out and and meet that target with their sponsors, et cetera. So they now understand the level at which they can operate at um, and and allow them to to go out from there uh, to gain that performance. Uh, In terms of uh, 2022, I think the biggest inference of 2022 for anybody's Honda because of what they did this season um, with their power unit it is a completely revolutionary design compared to what we've seen from them in the past. Uh, they've changed so much of the architecture of the power unit. And all of those parts were designed to be introduced in 2022. But obviously with them exiting the sport at the end of this year, they fast-tracked everything to enable Red Bull to have that transitional year where they were working together. So it, it's important that um, Mercedes... Ferrari, Honda, Renault all make this progress throughout the course of 2021 to be able to make improvement for 2022. Uh, But I don't see anything aside from the power units where you might suggest, 
wow, this is 2022 focus because we've got such a drastic rule change on the chassis side of things for 2022. Uh, I don't think we'll really see too much uh, that will be able to be transferred from one uh, to the next season. Okay. And given that, and given the fact that the FIA loves to change things, are we seeing the them, like to me, the last one I remembered was the front wheel deflector uh, changing some, but are we seeing the FIA making some last minute changes to the regulations that the teams are going to have to deal with next year? And does that give us a clue as to where they think the teams might be able to cause their brand new shiny regulations the most trouble? Well, having looked through the latest draft of the regulations, um, the thing that stuck out to me the most was the fact that they've started to change some of the wording uh, that the the regulations are set up upon. So for argument's sake, we have wording descriptors within the regulations, such as um, underneath the car. And there that has been replaced with below the car because clearly somebody has seen something in the way in which they can interpret that to gain performance. On top of that, they've clarified things like the axle lines so that they now have coordinates uh, along the car. They've added a clause within the uh, width of the car to do with wheel rims because they weren't specific enough within the wording before. So the teams could have perhaps looked at a way of outstepping the wheel rim slightly. Uh, and they're just covering their bases, essentially, as you've mentioned. On, on top of that, you've got things like uh, load deflection tests have changed within the wording of the regulations and also uh, the, the actual loads themselves because of the, the nature of what we've had this season with the change uh, of the, detect, uh, the, the load tests. Uh, and then on top of that, you've got things where perhaps the FIA have looked at learning from past experience. So Roman Grosjean's crash enabled them to take a forensic look at certain aspects of car design and perhaps look at the way in which the regulations are written to make improvements for safety. And one of those that stood out to me were the pullout loads for fittings that go into the fuel bladder. A lot of those have been amended in order that they have more uh, or they have to withstand more uh, loads uh, on the pull-out side of things. So I think that has come as a, a relationship to Grosjean's accident. And it always stands out to me that the FIA are always looking to learn from things that do happen within the sport and they have had little experience or real-world experience from in the past. Okay, so let's be uh, even more recent then. Uh, we saw our friend Max Verstappen drive right over the top of Lewis Hamilton's head. And uh, from that point on, there were loads of pictures of drivers in halos. And in particular, the one that stuck out, if you'll pardon the phrasing to me, was Ocon, whose head sticks out way above the halo. Do you think this might be something that would be looked at also by the FIA in advance of next season? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing with the halo, I, I don't believe they'll be able to inter implement anything to do with next season because of how close we are to the deadline. And, you know, most of the, the designs are ratified at this stage in that respect because of the lead time to build monocoques and, and, and such. Uh, however, I do think that they will take a look at this. It has been mentioned in the past, especially, as you mentioned, with tall drivers such as Ocon and George Russell. George Russell stands out 
as somebody who looks to be exceptionally tall when he drives the Mercedes, for argument's sake, because of this, the, the size of the, the cockpit, which is built relatively around Lewis Hamilton and Valtteri Bottas, who have a, a shorter frame, for argument's sake. Uh, how they go about making these changes is going to be slightly difficult because they have a template that they currently work to uh, from the uh, roll hoop down to the forward um, crash structure. So there are things already in place, but they will take lessons from what happened and they will try to implement some changes in the real world once they've figured out how that can work. But it's interesting, isn't it, that we've never really seen anything or a, a crash that remotely resembles what happened between Hamilton and Verstappen. But now we've had it, we've got a case study to be able to work from and be able to build new rules from. Yeah, that is fascinating. Um, And so to return us to our topic of the Ferrari-McLaren battle, I love the fact that Ferraris self-own about their entirely alleged excessive fuel use has put them into an absolutely glorious battle with McLaren for the third spot in the championship. I noticed you you had pictures up of the Ferrari rear wing at Sochi in particular. And to me, it looked like a brick wall with a gurney flap on it. Are they struggling to fix the rear end to the pavement? Why would I see that? Or was it just the nature of the picture and the colors they chose that made it look like that much mega downforce? barn door of a rear wing i think is what it's called as a technical term uh <laughs> it, it, it is a huge it was a huge high downforce rear wing that ferrari were using um a lot of the teams decided on a high downforce setup for sochi uh, purely because of the nature of the circuit and wanting to put more energy into the tires because as we know sochi is a place where uh, the tires you can that it's kind of kind on the tires isn't it you know remember back to was it 2016 where rosberg pitted on the sort of the third lap and did the whole rest of the race on a set of hard tires because there's just no deck and that is the realism behind or the the realistic choice behind why the teams would go in that uh direction um we have however seen occasions where drivers deviate from those um setups because they want less downforce they went want more straight line speed as max did in sochi he had a lower downforce setting on his car compared to perez because he knew he had to come from the back of the grid and in order to do that obviously he wants to have more straight line speed uh, to enable him to get past bottas rather easily and then continue on his way through the rest of the grid so it, it, it's a choice isn't it that basically is derived from needing the downforce wanting to work the tyres and also then having to consider how you use your power unit through the course of the race as well. So there's a a number of factors that go into the choices that they make. Obviously, the circuit specifics will dictate largely what the drivers have as their base setup and then work outwards from there. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I love that I can listen to you talk about these things and just light bulbs constantly are popping off over my head. I'm thinking about spa and your setup choices at spa, where if you think you're going to be in front of someone, you can opt for more downforce because you can extend your advantage through sector two making it hard to catch you and you can extend your advantage through the chicane and just about the time you get caught you're back to sector two again but if you want to overtake someone you know you need an absolute top speed delta to overtake them so if you're going to be overtaking you're always going to be looking to trim down force in order to be able to make those moves happen it just uh, is one of the reasons that i absolutely love the sport well the the Going back to Max Verstappen as an example there, I, I think the race that never happened, Spa, uh, is an interesting one in that respect because Max Verstappen actually fitted the Monza spec wing to the Red Bull during Saturday free practice three as they have either evaluated using that wing for Monza ahead of time or they were going to take the massive gamble of having no, well, I'm not going to say no downforce, more than the Haas anyway, uh, through sector two with that low downforce wing, but have such an immense advantage for the straight line uh, of, you know, sectors one and sectors two, uh, sector three, sorry. So, you know, that comes down to driver confidence as well. Some of the drivers can't actually handle having less downforce on the car because they just don't, they're not inspired by having little downforce. It's where this season we've seen a direct comparison between Hamilton and Bottas because Bottas has generally taken more downforce than Lewis Hamilton. And again, this is a factor why I believe that Hamilton has been able to nurse his power unit that little bit better because he's always had less uh, fatigue applied to the power unit because he's been running less downforce. And uh, and obviously that that bears out uh, over the course of the season where he's able to to run the power unit that long, that much longer. Right. So just to clarify, then what you're saying is, in essence, because he's running less downforce, there's less overall drag for the power unit to push to get to any particular speed. Therefore, it will undergo less stress relative to someone who's running more downforce. Correct. Yes. All right. I, I, I'm now entirely distracted by this. But we were talking about Ferrari. We were talking about McLaren. McLaren has been I really thought Monza was a one-off. I thought they had set it up to say, from the last turn, Parabolica, 
to the first turn, we want to be faster than anybody else. And beyond that, the drivers just have to be able to drive a really good defensive line. And if you can do that for us, we can win the race. But then they turn up at Sochi and, you know, barring all that wet stuff, it honestly looked like it was on Hamilton to provoke a mistake from Norris or else Norris was going to win had the conditions stayed the same. Have they really designed a car, a customer car, no less, that can beat the manufacturer on on tracks to which it is suited? Uh, I think the, the biggest factor you have to consider about McLaren's car this year is that they did it without spending tokens on parts of the car that other teams were able to exploit. So the likes of Red Bull changed their gearbox design or their gearbox carrier design this year because of the problems they had last year with the uh, rear end stability and suspension setup. But McLaren weren't able to do any of that because they didn't have the tokens at their disposal. They had to spend them on the integration of the Mercedes power unit having moved from the Renault. So for me, they are the real surprise of the pack because I expected them to slide a little bit further towards Ferrari based on the fact that they, you know, they technically had lost some ground in the ability to be able to get the best from their car. Having said that, they did have a fairly substantial advantage last season. Their car was very good last year um, under all sorts of conditions. I think that's where the McLaren really comes uh, to its fore is the fact that it's able to get results at almost every kind of circuit. It does not respond as well to higher downforce circuits, but anything sort of mid to low downforce and the McLaren becomes a real force. And obviously that is extrapolated further when you consider the fact that they've got the Mercedes power unit this year rather than the the Renault in the back of there because they've got that little bit more punt as well. Okay, so I'm fascinated by this little detail that that you dropped on me. You wrote a lovely article about S-Ducks and about the difference between the Mercedes and the Red Bull. And I did look at the pictures and maybe I understood that there was a difference between them. But then in, in the chat, you were just sort of like, oh, and by the way, McLaren doesn't even have an S duct. So now I'm going to have to ask a gazillion part question. First of all, explain what the S duct is and what it does and why the difference between Mercedes and Red Bull might matter at all. And then explain to me why McLaren can be as good as they are without even having one. Okay. Well, it's an optimization, is what I would say. The, it, from an aerodynamic point of view, it helps tidy up things both on the underside and the top side of the nose and the chassis. So it's a, it, it helps to optimize the flow. So if you've not got poor conditions in the first place, then you don't particularly need one. It is a fanciful device that's not 100% required. Obviously, everybody else has got one, so there are some advantages to having them. But what we have to remember, again, based on the token discussion, is that McLaren didn't have any tokens at their disposal this year. It was a two-token spend to actually introduce a new nose, which is what you would need to have an S-duct added to the car because they didn't have one in 2020. So, you know, they, they were committed. They were never having one this season because they couldn't have one this season because they, they didn't have one last season. In fact, the last time I believe they ran one was in 2017. Uh, they ran 
uh, an estuct for a number of years and then they just decided to abandon it because they'd moved on to a different nose design they moved to the narrower nose design that mercedes run and again most of the grid now run um but I think, as I say, it's an optimization, and it's more of a fanciful uh, device that moves airflow from the underside of the nose to the upper surface uh, and affects, obviously, things like uh, pressure gradients in that, so- that sort of area. Uh, but it's not a necessary item, as, as we can quite clearly see by um, McLaren's use of, uh, of their performance on their car without having one. Yeah, and this actually kind of gives me a little bit of hope for the next new set of regulations that we'll see next season. Because even deprived of something that every other team has, they are still able to uh, produce a car that is capable of fighting for the occasional win and is definitely in the hunt for third overall in the constructors, which, given the amount of turmoil they've had at that team, I think is no mean feat. Yeah, it's an exceptional job that they've done. And I think one of the other things that has gone largely unmentioned is the fact of what McLaren did to create a sort of A-spec car and a B-spec car um, coming out of uh, the the third or fourth race, uh, where they basically changed the design of their side pods and rear cooling outlet. Because at that point, then they'd got the information available to them as to what the cooling could be done with the Mercedes power unit and how they could translate that into performance on the aerodynamic side of things. So for me, as I mentioned, I think McLaren have done an exceptional job given the circumstances that they were put under uh, in terms of the transition between 20 and 21 because of the homologation and token system uh, and just the way in which everybody else was able to exploit being able to improve parts of their car, and they technically weren't. Okay. Now, it would not officially be attack time if I did not mention the dreaded four-letter word, not the one that will get me banned from Twitter forever, but tire. Of course, I've seen recently people saying that the whole reason we're suddenly having all these visibility problems is because the tires are wider. But am I just entirely mistaken in thinking that a wider tire simply clears more water faster? And that that's ultimately a better thing if you've got a track that you want to be able to race on? Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, the the problem that you have with tyres and water clearance is caused by uh, the wake profile of the car. And we have to remember that these cars are shifting a huge amount of water in in a different way because uh, of the uh, way in which that the wake of the car is, you know, moving that water. And so, obviously, we we're it's a difficult one. Water wet races, they're always going to be a problem, no matter the tyre manufacturer, uh, no matter the regulation set. I mean, I did see that uh, Jean Todd was mentioning the fact that we must build cars that can race in the wet. Well, they can race in the wet, but the conditions that we've had over some of these races, certainly, uh, for me at least, is beyond where we've had the conditions in years gone by and you do have to factor in the safety uh, of the drivers when and the trackside personnel uh, when you take into decisions to do with uh, with safety right well it, it i find it uh, entirely entertaining that that we are going to an e100 fuel 
when most of the complaints people are having about inability to raise in the wet is due to the fact that we're seeing you know record amounts of rain being dumped at times and places we didn't used to expect them. So maybe F1 is contributing to in a small way to the solution of this problem, but I, I can't be, and I agree with you, they, the wider tires have been a godsend for this season because they've allowed, amongst other things, uh, one-stop versus two-stop strategies that are viable, which we haven't seen in ages. And we've also seen the, um, just the fact that they're able to survive with the amount of energy that the, the teams put, the amount of energy the teams put through them. So what I'd like to do now is to talk about the future a little bit and specifically about the brand new power unit regulations because we've been so, so good to talk about immediate and topical things. All right, so the thing that we have heard, and, and this all comes out of our friend, uh, from our friend Toby Gruner, reporting on the latest iteration of the power unit uh, meetings. The one thing that seems to be confirmed, or is confirmed as anything is till it's actually written down on a piece of paper and published, because <laughs> I won't go that far, is that they're planning to drop the MGUH and they're planning to add more MGUK. And I just, I would like to get your take on that. I have my own. And then, and then I would like to, well, you know, we just have a, a wee bit of a discussion. An ode to the MGUH, if you will. Okay, so firstly, the reason being for the MGH uh, deletion is that that is what the stumbling block is believed to be for new manufacturers entering the sport. So let's be clear on that. The, the current manufacturers do not realistically want to delete the MGUH. They've spent the last seven plus years trying to perfect that technology and have obviously made incredibly impressive power units that use the MGUH as the heart of the energy recovery system. So looking at bringing in Audi and Porsche is the main reason for deleting the MGUH because it, it lowers the barrier for their entry. Uh, they don't have to learn that technology, um, which is quite a difficult one to get hold of. As we saw from Honda in the early days that they entered this sport, they really struggled with the MGUH. Uh, there was some talk actually of an MGU on the front axle to compensate losing the MGUH, uh, but that I believe has been shelved because that will obviously have a, a varied arrange, arrangement of uh, problems that surround it. Now, I don't want to get too down on the fact that we're losing the MGUH because at the end of the day, the sport has to move in a certain direction. It wouldn't be the direction I would personally take, but it is what we have. So I'm not going to get too down on the fact that we're losing it, but look forward to what we're actually going to get in, in its replacement if we can. And um, I think there might be some pretty cool things coming if what has been talked about actually appears. Okay, so for the people who only know MGUH as four letters that breaks all the time and is responsible for everything that's currently wrong with F1, could you tell us a little bit about, first of all, what exactly is the MGUH, how it functions, and most importantly, because I see it blamed incorrectly more than, than any other part, 
How much does it actually weigh? What does it add to the power unit overall? Okay. So firstly, when do you remember there being an MGUH failure? Can I ask that question? Because I don't believe there's been that many MGUH failures. The thing with the MGUHs is that we were sold the fact that it is a complicated piece of technology. And it is from an, you know, from not only from the way in which it works within the energy recovery system, but also from a mechanical aspect because of the speed that it must operate at, which is around 100,000 RPM at, at, at full tilt because it's attached to the turbocharger. Now, depending on which team or manufacturer you are, that is done in a different way. If we take Mercedes for an example, they have a split turbocharger. They have what I would consider to be the best variant because Honda chased that direction. So their MGUH lies within the middle of the turbocharger. They split the turbo and the compressor at either end of the ICE and the MGUH lives between it. Now, the fascinating part of the MGUH is that it delivers energy on a constant basis directly to the MGUK, missing out the energy store. And so you're effectively overriding what you would consider to be the four megajoule, megajoule limit uh, that the technical regulations talked about or talk about um, as the available energy throughout the course of a lap. So it extends the lifespan of what you can actually do in terms of uh, deployment and recovery. So those two MGUs, the H and the K, the K being attached to the crankshaft, which is what most people would determined to be the rear axle or the curs unit can sort of talk to one another let's say in terms of energy they pass energy to one another directly uh, and they also feed it into the energy store and they can take it out of the energy store it's sort of a, a whole living ecosystem within itself and the problem that i have in terms of the new regulations is if you're taking away the mguh where do you get the energy from that it has been recovering where does this sudden amount of energy that you've had for all this time suddenly appear from? Because the MGUK can only do so much because it can only break for so long. And at certain circuits, it's obviously even worse because you have less braking points throughout the circuit. So this is where I'm sat on the fence in terms of the future 2026 onwards power unit and not having an MGUH. But as I say, there are some more interesting componentry that they are talking about. And certainly in terms of what they're looking to do with the MGUK, which, as I've said in the past, I believe should have a higher threshold anyway. Okay, so what what is the new tech that is exciting you, as the point is made in the chat room, is doesn't that basically the MGUH mean that you have an always-on turbocharger, so there is no turbo lag whatsoever? Correct. That was that's that's the big, you know, that's the big factor behind the MGUH is that you never really have any turbo lag. So redesigning the, these new power units for twenty twenty six will have to factor that in with the turbos. We will have to have some kind of, I don't know, variable geometry that allows us to have uh, a turbo that operates differently to the the, the spec that we have currently. Uh, in as much as that. You know, we we don't have any lag from these units uh, because they're all the turbo is always spooled electrically, and then it also recovers electrically at the high end as well to to obviously then pass that back to the curves. 
uh, or the MG UK in this respect. Going back to your earlier point now about weight, uh, one thing that I find fascinating is that the power unit always gets a bad rap when it comes to weight. Now, 2013, the V8 and Kurs, 95 kilogram minimum. Power unit weight in 2014 went up to 145 kilograms. So yeah, we had an uplift in weight. Since then, it's only gone up by 50 kilograms. Yet the weight of the car has gone up from 690 kilograms in 2014 to, 20, uh, to 790 kilograms in 2022. So we've gone up by 150 kilograms without the power unit weight increasing. And that's all to do with the car componentry. The weight that's been added to cars is not realistically to do with power units. It's to do with uh, to do with the uh, the weight of the car itself. But in terms of the um, the exciting aspect that potentially we might get is the fact that not only is the curse going to be a massive, massive boost going into twenty twenty six by the looks of it, going up from what we have now is one hundred and twenty kilowatts or about one hundred and sixty horsepower boost from the MG UK. It's looking like they're going to go to 350 kilowatts or 470 horsepower worth of boost from the MG UK. Massive boost, huge. Uh, it's you know three times plus the, the amount of boost. Uh, but on top of that, they are also looking at perhaps even introducing active aero or reintroducing active suspension to help out with energy recovery side of things. Well, that was going to be the last question I asked you. Are we just simply adding the MGUH to things like Active Aero, ABS, and every other thing that Formula One has outlawed that they initially invented and has gone on to be just sort of genius technology? Yeah, I mean, the the, the problem, I think, is that the MGUH is sort of almost Formula One proprietary technology in as much as that it's not really used in the road car industry. And I think that's where the the problem is always laid with bringing in new manufacturers because they have to learn a new technology that isn't necessarily transferable. But when we're talking about hybrid systems, surely the, you know, the, the high end that Formula One works at lends itself to understanding certain aspects anyway. So uh, the MGUH deletion is obviously not my favourite thing to have ever seen um, appear in a new regulation set, but we, we're, we're there. We, we have to accept it and um, I, you know, get excited behind what technology might come out of the back end of a new, uh, a new power unit that's arriving for 26. Okay, I tell you what, before we uh, say goodbye, um, let's do a couple of listener questions, and I'm going to ask you to be modestly brief. Like, you need to take less time than it takes me to ask the question. So because, yes you know, no my answers. questions are famously very, very long. Okay, our first question is from our friend Stuart Neal, who would like to know, I'm interested in the development of the power units. We have quieter mega hybrid units because we're told that's what the manufacturers insisted on. Now it looks like the midterm direction of travel is towards a less emissions-concerned solution. What is the ultimate solution for Formula One in the future under more constrained emissions legislation, with Formula E being full electric and uh, WEC testing hydrogen? What are the trade-offs with all the next wave of options, and what is realistic for F1 and even other formulas? Well, that'll that. Good luck answering that in ten seconds. It's almost like one of your questions, Matt. I know. Uh, triple loaded uh basically i think the direction that they're going to head on in 2026 is more 
um, entertainment orientated. I think that the curse system that I've mentioned will also almost be a two tier system. So you'll have a system for the curse that basically operates much like we have quite now, but there'll also be a boost option on top of that to give the the, the driver an option for uh, the curse boost that they had back in uh, the early 2010s. And so I think that's the direction that we're heading in. The problem with Formula One in many respects is that it takes long arcs. It's almost like watching a, a, a series on Netflix, isn't it, where you, you've got these massive arcs going on and then you've got smaller storylines going on in the in-between. And in terms of the uh, power units, obviously, that their long arcs are around five years. The current power unit will have done about 10 years, uh, which is probably one of the longest serving that we've had in the sport. Uh, but, you know... The, the huge amount of investment that went into there for the engine manufacturers, I think that it sort of paid them back in many respects. And I think that's what predominantly this is all about. It's all about the test bed for the manufacturers and getting them interested. And I think what Formula One have decided is that they need to lower the barrier to get more manufacturers involved uh, and obviously in, increase the, the performance and entertainment aspect. Okay, well, speaking of entertainment, uh, John M. would like to know, what are the latest developments in strategy for teams? Listening to the most recent Beyond the Grid, which I don't know what that is, but apparently it's a thing. Ruth Buscombe, who I know is a strategist, uh, I think for uh, Sauber right now, uh, casually mentions that they're doing more than just Monte Carlo simulations. Do you know the kinds of things exactly they are up to that go beyond that? I mean, basically, I would suggest that machine learning and AI are, are probably those sort of areas that the teams are interested in uh, to improve their modelling of the simulations. The Monte Carlo simulation, obviously, um, is a way of um, developing a strategy or multiple strategies or understanding how things will unfold. However, I think what they, they will clearly be looking to do is improve the way in which that those simulations give them the information to work upon. So essentially what you're saying is they're going to use uh, machine learning to better uh, forecast the performance of opposing teams and drivers to help them narrow their strategy options and choose the best ones. Yes. The only thing I would suggest is they don't use AWS as their source. Okay. I'm, I'm allegedly, yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's just where they keep the information once they're done calculating it. All right. And we have one more quick one. Uh, we've, we've seen, uh, this is from Pete Shilcock. We've seen that Mercedes and Red Bull definitely have tracks that suit them. And that's probably very much down to the fact that Mercedes has chosen sort of a low rake approach versus the Red Bull high rake approach. And then the difficulties that engenders upon the various aerodynamic solutions to the fastest way around the track. Of the tracks left, do you have a list of which you think might favor Mercedes uh, versus Red Bull? Well, the only one that we have no data on effectively is um, Saudi Arabia. Which will be fun yeah, for that. Very we, we, we've not raced there, and it's going to be an extremely yeah. quick street oh, circuit. Qatar too, no? Ah, yes. Sorry, right. I forgot. I forgot about Qatar. Um, so yeah, we have two tracks now that we have zero data on um, in terms of Formula One uh, visiting in the past, and obviously that 
bears into the simulation chat we were just having as well, because the teams do not have previous data to work with in able to facilitate a better uh, strategy call. Uh, in terms of upcoming tracks, the, the one standout thing that I will say is that tracks at altitude should suit Red Bull more. They have in the past. So you look at that historic data and you expect them to do well in the likes of Mexico and Brazil, where you obviously have higher altitude. However, Mercedes have always gone well at Cota for argument's sake, so I would expect them to do well there. And Abu Dhabi is kind of going to be a, a bit of a mix, isn't it? A mixed bag between who does well. Red Bull did well there last year, um, but Mercedes have historically done well there in the past. So I think it's a bit of a mixed bag between the two. The two tracks that obviously stand out in terms of giving us a bit of a lottery in many respects are going to be the two tracks we've never visited before. And so I I do anticipate a very, very good end to the season and a bit of to-in and fro-in and obviously maybe some more penalties to be taken for power units. Okay, well, I think that brings us to the end of our show today. Where, Mr. Summers, can we find you on the social medias that we all love to doom scroll? And no, that's not another promotional for another show that Spanners and I might be doing. Uh, You can find me on the Twitter. That's the best place for me. Summers F1. Excellent. Well, I'm at MattPT55 on the Twitters. Please do come and drop by and say hi to me. Feel free to tell me how wrong I am. And remember, until next time, drive hard, play loose, be kind to your tires. Uh, I believe you might, we might have missed something that Spanish usually misses. Putts? <laughs> Putts, no. Oh my Comment God. of the it's week. It's happened. It's happened. I'm sitting here as a silent producer watching Matt forget comment of the week. This is the best day ever. Comment well, that's because you suck like I do. Well, okay. If I'm going to be entirely fair, I did see you in the chat say that you were going to do that. Okay, so what I actually said, I, I followed it up later by saying, leave me off mic now because uh, I've been drinking rum and like, you know, when you don't talk to people for a long time and then suddenly you're asked to have a conversation, you're like, well, what? I don't want to talk to people, but I can do that. I've got a couple of suggestions if you don't have any. Um, I've only got two nominees though, Matt, if that's all right. Uh, yeah, no, rock them on in and then we'll uh, you, you get decide. this puppy done. Okay, so I've got Peter Shilcock, when you started asking your first question, said, here we go. 15 parter coming up i'm doing a northern accent i'm assuming he's northern and then we've got Stuart neil saying williams now have a 50p to put in the meter so they can run that wind tunnel this year sorry only two nominees then matt what do you reckon all right well i have i have three more our oh, friend okay, Stuart good. neil i like it when map takes a weekend off yes we had planned to take the weekend off because i've got joe tomorrow so do tune in for joe sayward tomorrow afternoon uh, but then I just, I, I took a punt and I said, hey, guys, do you want to do a tech time? Indeed. And we were like, sure, why not? What could possibly go wrong? Yeah. And I think we're at the end of answering that question now. It's gone um, fine. Like, fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you mostly didn't fall asleep. Um, our friend EJ says, uh, with regards to the teams being done with 2021, everyone's pretty done with 2021, which, yeah, I think we can most. <laughs> 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. So you get behind that. Yeah, yeah, I'm there. Uh, Chris Fonseca is in with Can't Wait to See What the 2022 Double Tusk Will Be. A uh, neat reference to our friend Mr. Carter. And last, we have our friend Nick, the F1 geek, asking Summers, can you indeed wakeboard behind an F1 car in the wet? Have you got a winner there, Matt? It's got to be Nick, the F1 geek, because he's the only one who made the Summers laugh. (laughs) Can you wakeboard behind an F1 car in the wet? Congratulations, Nick, the F1 geek. Comment of the week. 